listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Everybody, glad you are here with us this morning. Uh, you would be amazed at what this place looked like about 48 hours ago. Not like this. A lot less chairs, a lot more puppets on stage, a lot more tools on the stage. Uh, but we are thankful for a good week at VBS. Uh, and we're thankful uh, that we can continue in our study this morning in summer sessions. Uh, I will say just uh, another caveat. I always feel like I have a caveat in the morning. I don't know. But uh, we're missing our better half or better third this morning. Uh, my wife was supposed to join us. Your better half. Yeah, not our, our better. better third. Yes, better yes. third. There we go. My better half. Uh, and so uh, she was supposed to be with us this morning, uh, but uh, she's unable to be here. Uh, but we're going to try to our best to, to pick up the slack uh, as far as that goes. Uh, but uh, we do have a pretty interesting question for us uh, this morning. And it kind of goes off the back of what we talked about last week. Uh, if you, we want to do a quick minute summary of what we talked about last week, we talked about uh, Scripture. We talked about the idea of asking the question, can you trust the Bible? Uh, and we went through several different points. We went through several different questions inside of that question. And today is kind of a play on uh, last week's question, looking at some secular claims about Scripture uh, that um, maybe, maybe even not even secular, maybe even within the Christian viewpoint you could get here. Uh, but we would say uh, that these are on the, on the forefront of this conversation. We would say that the Bible is not pro-slavery and the Bible is not anti-woman. Okay, so let's just kind of start there. Uh, but we do understand that these are uh, popular viewpoints for uh, people on one side to say this is what the Bible says. And maybe even a fraction of Christians that would even say that, man, the Bible is gives me some authority or more dignity than a certain person, uh, which is one of the core aspects of this question. Uh, and so I do have a, a pretty good quote uh, by a guy named... Uh, Penn Gillette, which is a prominent atheist, uh, he actually uh, does like magician. Yeah, Penn, yes. that awesome show. Anybody ever yeah. watched that show? The yeah, Pull Me it, it was show? awesome. It was awesome. Oh, I love that show. He's a very outspoken atheist, yeah. and he said this. He said, "Reading the Bible is a fast track to atheism. Reading the Bible is a fast track to atheism." This is actually a pretty common viewpoint among atheists that would say. A lot of people don't read their Bibles, and they don't understand what it actually says. And if you actually go into it, it's going to prove to you just how much of a fairy tale, how much, of a, uh, how much nonsense is in Scripture. And a lot of people like to pull a lot of Old Testament texts that we're going to maybe even speak about today, or maybe even some of the New Testament texts that we'll talk about that are, that's in 1 Corinthians, by the way. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll pull these things, and we'll say, man, as I started reading the Bible— this just doesn't make sense. It's a really good book by a guy named Dan Kimball. That says, uh, it's, the title is How Not to Read the Bible. And he begins his book by outlining how as a young Christian, he started to read the Bible and it drove him into a state of disbelief. That he started to come across these texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it said, and there was things that no one ever talked about. 
that he couldn't explain, that he had no idea what to do with. And so when we talk about these parts of Scripture, there are frankly weird and intimidating pieces of Scripture. And I believe, this is why we're doing this, that we just need to talk about them. Let's, there's a reason why uh, the Bible was given to us, and there's a reason why those texts are in Scripture. And we as Christians can't shy away from those and, hey, don't read that part. Just read this part. It's, it's much better. Right? Just read Romans, right? Um, but actually, there's some weird there's stuff. Some weird in, stuff in, in that's Romans. right. That was a bad example. Uh, just read John. I don't know. That, <laughs> it's all crazy, right? So, Kyle, let's start. Okay, let's start there. Let's start. Okay. <laughs> with, uh, what's your favorite weird part of scripture? What's your favorite okay, passage, so, whatever? So I'm a 41-year-old guy, and right. I'm still a guy. And so that means that those favorite stories that were my favorite whenever I was 13 years old mm. are still my favorite. And so I think of Judges 5 okay. with Sisera, <laughs> if you remember. So you have Barak and Deborah. And they go to battle, and they're chasing after this enemy commander, Sisera. And he flees, and he runs to the tents of a Kenite. And there's this lady there named J.L. And J.L. says, why don't you come into my uh, tent? And he comes into the tent, and she says, why don't you drink a little milk and lay down right here, rest a little bit? And he lays down, and then she takes a tent peg, and she smashes it through his head. Great story. Yeah, and it... (laughs) I mean, it says he was bound to the ground yes. in the Hebrew. That's pretty amazing. For a 13-year-old and a 41-year-old. Yeah. It's like, man, my parents want to let me watch stuff that's like this, but I'm reading it. Oh, I know. Um, so. I'm still, there aren't many kids in here. I'm still uncomfortable with my kids whenever they're like, so, Dad, tell me about Song of Solomon. <laughs> There's a, okay, isn't that, rabbis weren't allowed to read You haven't read it, have you? No, not yet. Yeah. Uh, I'll get there. Um, Rabbis weren't allowed to read that until no, they were... until they were 20-year-old men. That's right. Uh, that's, that's pretty crazy. I, well, I won't go there. Never mind. I'll go to my weird story. My favorite one, 2 Kings 2, Elisha and the Bears. That's my favorite one. Uh, there's some people that are mocking Elijah, and he calls out the bears, and just and they maul them. And, and the, the bald people in the room are like, that's my favorite story, too, because they, they mock him <laughs> for being bald. Uh, and they call out the she-bears, and there's just this incident of, of again, violence. I think it's the violence. Uh, but being able to call out bears is just... So, so we had this awkward outreach thing in Malaysia where we invited a bunch of university students over, and about half of the university students were believers, and about half were unbelievers. And we were just kind of going around, and I invited Andrew to come along. I mean, he was, you know, 15 at the time, and I was like, oh, he's pretty mature. 15-year-old boy, yeah, that's smart. And so... We're sitting around in this circle, and we're going around, and we're asking some of the Christians, you know, well, what's one of your favorite passages of Scripture? And we're asking the unbelievers, well, what are some of your big questions about Scripture? And it comes to Andrew, and he says, Elijah and the bears. And I'm like, yeah, because that's what I want these unbelievers starting their first Bible experience reading. Yeah. It's a conversation on the way home. Well, yeah. Um, (laughs) So there are... We could go on the whole time just talking about weird parts of Scripture. Uh, we could go to Levitical law. I think I mentioned even the idea of in Leviticus when there's a de- disease in the house of taking two birds and killing them uh, and splattering their blood and saying, hey, okay, it's clean now. Uh, just going, 
I don't know what that means, you know, and, and we could go throughout uh, scripture and point out these weird, intimidating passages, but what do we do with some of these things that frankly make no sense uh, when we're reading it, even in, maybe even in context? So what do we do with these things? What do you do? What do I do? I think it starts with understanding the story of scripture. Um, a lot of the time when we are, uh, when, when people don't, kind of cherry pick these verses and say, here, look what the Bible says and condemn it. And they're more mocking it. I think it's most of the time outside of the context of scripture. And we're going to get into this, obviously, when it comes to slavery and when it comes to uh, misogyny and all the things that uh, people claim about scripture. But I think one of the, the biggest parts of misunderstanding is not understanding the biblical storyline, not understanding biblical theology and how it fits into God's grand narrative. Um, and so, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I absolutely agree with that. You have different levels of context that you have to think about. So you have to think about what is the historical context right. in which this passage is written? And it's very hard for us to even wrap our minds around what it was like to live <laughs> in Israel, yeah. you know, 4,000 years ago. And so first we have to get into that historical context. And I find that whenever we figure that out, some of these passages seem to make a little more sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's why they're doing it, right? Yeah. But then, like you said, we have to bring it into the context of Scripture as a whole, the context in that book the context in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and then the context in the whole Bible. Right. And whenever you put it in its place within Scripture, you start to see, oh, okay, yeah. so this is what God is doing with that. Right. Never, never read a Bible verse, right? No. Never read a Bible. It's always within the context of the chapter, and that's in the context of a passage or the book of itself. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with maybe even our... Um, This may step on some toes, but it's okay. Even our devotional culture is we have these devotions that maybe are given to us and they're taken from everywhere. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying sometimes we can pull these verses and we can make them mean whatever we want them to mean because it's just two verses that I'm reading. Well, and this isn't a new thing. So I am a huge Charles Spurgeon fan, one of the greatest Baptist preachers ever, and his morning and evening is just this. He takes verses completely out of context, and then he gives a devotional, which the devotional is often very great. Right. But then if you read that verse in the context, it has nothing to do with what he said. Yes. Yeah. yes. And I think that's part of the problem when we come to things like, and there's, there's factions of this where people maybe even take a biblical theology and say, no, the Bible is absolutely pro-slavery, or the Bible is absolutely misogynistic, or, you know, these ideas. But... Moving on to the idea of slavery itself, okay, there are claims that argue uh, that the Bible is pro-slavery. I mean, not 150 years ago, uh, there's a great book by a guy named Mark Knoll, uh, The Civil War and the Theological Crisis, which very much talks about the idea of the Civil War and the people on both sides. One was very pro-Bible, And they read their Bible in light of saying, the Bible is telling me to fight for the institution of slavery. And you can go read this book, and and you can see that actually that people that were on the one side of slavery were calling the abolitionists liberals. 
in saying that they were not reading the Bible. They were throwing out the authority of Scripture. And so this isn't a old or an outdated viewpoint. Uh, it's pretty young. And so these claims, there's, there's people that claim that the Bible is pro-slavery. So where do you see this? Where, where do these claims come from, and do they have any merit? Yeah, so I mean, I think the first thing that we need to think about is, as we talked about a minute ago, context, right? Well, the Bible is written in an ancient context. And within that ancient context, there are different types of societal relationships, and the word that gets used in the Bible is servant, evid, or in the New Testament, doulos, servant or slave. And so the words that are used seem to imply this type of master-servant relationship. And I think what we tend to do is we tend to look back on those ancient relationships in that ancient context but we read it through American chattel slavery, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I think what Jace is saying is absolutely right that um, there was, I mean, the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention. You look at (laughs) the writings of guys like John Brodus, and it's it's shocking. It it makes us feel uncomfortable to read it because it is very pro-slavery, and they are using verses from the Bible to um, endorse their pro-slavery views. But at the same time, they're making other statements that are very anti-Bible. Yes. Has anyone in here ever read the Declaration of Causes for why Texas seceded to join the Confederate States of America? Anyone? Look it up. It's online, Texas Archives, Declaration of Causes. It says in there, it refers to African Americans as savages, It says that they are less than the white man, that they are less intelligent, that they are less capable, all of these different things. And it has this one shocking line. It says, one of the reasons that we are leaving the North is because the North teaches that debased doctrine that all men are created equal. And so why did Texas secede? In opposition to the idea that all men are created equal. It's one of their stated causes, voted on down in Austin, 1861. You can look it up in the Texas archives. And so a statement like that is very anti-Bible. So on the one hand, it's, they're looking at their practice and they're saying, how can I justify this? How can I find verses that justify this? And on the other hand, they see these other verses and they say, well, I'm just going to ignore those, right? And I think we all have a tendency to do this But I think whenever we look at what is slavery in its ancient context, Mm -hmm. it helps us to to get a better grasp on things. And another thing that we need to answer is, we're asking the question, is the Bible pro-slavery? Well, none of us would deny that the Bible speaks of slavery, that the Bible acknowledges that in the ancient world there were various types of slavery. In fact, until the abolition movement, it... You can pick any culture globally, there was slavery in some form. Now, there are differences in the types of slavery. You know, could the person uh, buy themselves out of slavery? Could the person, uh, after a certain period of time, automatically become free? Uh, Were the people treated, you know, viciously or humanely? There are various different types of slavery globally, 
But until the abolition movement, it was the standard practice globally throughout right. a long ways back. Yeah, and that's a huge point because a part of understanding uh, a part of understanding this like the context and what we're speaking of, there was slavery that that God Himself speaks to in Exodus twenty one uh, when He says. If you buy a Hebrew slave, that's how he starts. And he is speaking to this idea of slavery. But a lot of people would take this verse, if you buy a Hebrew slave, and you know, make him work for six years, what happens that seventh year? God speaks to it. He says, you should let him free. Right. And there's ways that you would see in Exodus 21 where God is speaking to this idea of slavery, and he's actually giving dignity and worth to the people that are working. And that is so countercultural to the way slaves were treated in this context. Absolutely. So um, even though I, I don't want, I want to distinguish ancient Near Eastern slavery. Yeah. So if I'm talking about like Babylon or Assyria or the Hittite Empire or Egypt, mm-hmm. I want to separate that from American chattel slavery right. because in American chattel slavery, um, Americans tended to view slaves as property. That was not the case in the ancient Near East. They did view them as humans, mm. but they viewed them as humans who were lesser, who you could treat um, in very vicious, different ways. Mm-hmm. And so for the Bible to come along and to speak of you know, acknowledging freedom as a possibility for slaves <laughs> simply because they are humans... Right. Um, is revolutionary. Or even the claim where it's like, hey, if you hurt your slave, if yeah, his eye yeah. gets you know, damaged, if his teeth get kicked yeah. out, you should you let... You get punished. Yeah, you get punished. That's right. Keep going. Yeah, no, no, and I, was, and I think that there's a, a very important um, thing to think about here is the Bible is always speaking in light of what God has already revealed. Mm. And so right at the very beginning... It is revealed that all humans who have ever lived are made in God's image. And that doesn't matter, um, obviously, what they look like or what nationality they are. Um, It doesn't matter even what they do. Like, a criminal in prison today is still made in God's image. Somebody who is on death row today is still made in God's image and therefore worthy of dignity and respect and honor for being made in God's image. And so that's stated right at the beginning of the Bible. This is not hidden. This is not some secret doctrine, right? And so everything else needs to be interpreted in light of that. And even whenever we do get to the laws about slavery, it has to be remembered that this is in the context of laws that are being given to a people who were just slaves in Egypt. They were... um, They were servants that were bound in a way where they could not be freed. As an ethnic people, they were slaves, and they were conscripted to build all sorts of things for the Pharaoh. And so whenever God gives his laws, before he gives any of the laws of the Ten Commandments, which are the foundational laws, he begins in Exodus 20, verse 1, and he says, and and God spoke all these words, and then verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. 
You should have no other gods before the true God. Why? Because he is the God who redeemed them from slavery. So a core aspect of the biblical God's nature is a God who redeemed yeah. his people from slavery. And I find it pretty interesting when you look at American uh, chattel slavery, there was, uh, it was pretty popular to take the Exodus story out of the Old Testament when you were giving your, the uh, Bible to a slave. Why is that? You know, why, 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 like, that's a, that's a very, I mean, it's easy to find that. You can see that in the Museum of the Bible where uh, there's these Bibles that they've been taken away, the story of freedom. And I love that you're separating these two things because one of the things in the New Testament that I read that for, as I was studying for this was that 30% of the population was slaves. And a lot of the time people went into slavery or servanthood. It's really servanthood. Um, for the purpose to get out of poverty. They were uh, trying to work their way out. And, and so when Paul comes along in Ephesians 6 and starts speaking of this master-slave uh, dynamic, he's speaking to a thing in the culture that was very prominent. And what he does is gives a whole new lens to think about it because it's this mutual, mutual respect where that was not the case in the culture. And I love, when you think about it this way, where, where humans, I believe humans created slavery. Is that, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, of okay. course. All right. I didn't know if I was saying anything that was not true. So I'm just checking that. So humans created slavery. And what God does is he actually comes and reveals truth about how to, the dynamic of this human, like this human creation and he gives us rules. He gives us boundaries so that it can flourish. And, and even in Exodus 21, I would say that we can move past it. Because uh, there's a point of, hey, set this person free. And if this happens, you're punished. You know, those types of things. And so to say that the Bible is pro-slavery, to, say, to, to, to look at God's revealed truth and say, this allows me to own another person. What you actually have to do, and I love that you made this statement, is you have to go back to other anti-biblical claims. What was one of the claims within American uh, race-based slavery is that they were less than human. They, I mean, Christians would say, well, it's not, they're not made in the image of God like we are, so we can own them. And so if you're claiming that the Bible is pro-slavery, the Bible does talk about slavery, absolutely, but if you're saying I can own a person based on what the Bible says, you're having to make anti-biblical statements or, or believe anti-biblical things. Yeah, and I think, it's also, I think it's also worth pointing out, as I said earlier, it's very hard for us to get our minds into what it would have been like <laughs> to live in this ancient world um, where there are, no, there, is no, uh, there are no jails, there is no justice system in this way. There are no corporations. You don't go out and have a career like you work a field that your family owns to provide for your family and maybe some others in the community. And, um, and so whenever you owed a debt to someone else, there are various ways of taking care of that. Well, if you have enough land, well, maybe you can pass over some of that land to the individual, right? But... One of the other ways was you and your family can come serve me and work in my fields 
to pay this off. And your payment will be you're paying off the debt that you already owe. And so I don't, I don't want to fully equate you know, the job system and the career system that we have today with ancient slavery, but in a lot of ways it was similar. And it, you just have to remember in that ancient society, there was, they just didn't have the same structures that we have today. And so in our modern, in our modern day, to take, to take that next step and to say, okay, well, we have this bound, paid, provided for relationship, but you know what? We could profit more if we just started taking people and not paying them and exploiting them for the sake of greater profits. That goes well beyond anything in the ancient Near East and anything that the Bible speaks of as yeah. slavery, Old Testament or New Testament. Yeah. So let's move to a, I think, similar question because uh, it begins with a, it's a dignity type thing. But this is another uh, topic where people would um, kind of both sides. Uh, I was reading the, the, a book and it had a meme in a book. So if you like memes, and this book has a memes. A book with memes? I know. I felt uh, it was awesome. Is this one of those like graphic novels no, that no, my kids read? No, it wasn't. But, my kids are always like, I read five books today. What'd you read? Yeah. Oh, you read comics. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I did too. But it was a news story. It was a clip of a news story where a guy um, on the back of his tailgate had uh, 1 Corinthians 14, a, a woman shall be quiet, shall submit, I can't remember the exact verse, so you can look it up. I think we're, Mike's going to preach on it here in a few weeks, so you can uh, ask him about it. Uh, but um, it was the verse about a, a woman staying quiet in the context of church, okay? okay? And he said, it's in the Bible, so I believe it. Wow. So this is a verse where people can take it out of context. You see the same thing in First Timothy chapter 2. Uh, you see verses within the Old Testament and the New Testament that seem to, to, to reveal a uh, clear oppression of women, a clear call for submission, which people can in turn interpret to say that women are lesser than, that they don't have a voice. And so that would push people to uh, one of two ways. It could say, I believe that, so I'm going to go this way, and women, y'all be quiet, y'all stay in the kids, y'all stay, you know, to let the men talk, all right? This is why I want a woman on stage. I feel like we're like, I feel very awkward feel, right now. I know. Let's just be, yeah. you know, I feel like we're speaking to something. Anyway, so um, we can get mad at Lexi for that later. But, uh, but you, and then you can go the other way where it says, man, this is why I don't believe the Bible because the, the Bible oppresses women. It pushes them into a corner that's just not true. And so what about, let's start here. What about these verses that point to a clear submission from women? And does that equate to the Bible being patriarchal or misogynistic uh, in the way that it treats women? Yeah, so I think you used a, a number of different terms there. So you have submission on one hand, but then you also have patriarchal, and then you also have misogynistic. Mm -hmm. And I think that each of those are very different terms. Yes, they are. Um, so the way that Jamie and I think about these verses whenever we've worked through them is... First and foremost, Ephesians 5.21 says you have a mutual submission one mm -hmm. to another. But then within that, God has given specific roles within the family and within the church for 
how he has called people to serve and what responsibilities he has given them. It's not, it's never portrayed as putting one person over another in a domineering way or in a misogynistic way. It's never, it's never portrayed as anything more than this is the responsibility that I'm giving to these types of people and these are the responsibilities that I'm giving to these types of people. Yep. Now, the culture may look at those responsibilities and say, oh, well, we value this responsibility more and so it looks mm -hmm. like the Bible is anti this group or pro mm -hmm. this group. Mm -hmm. But that's really the culture's perspective mm -hmm. in that situation and it's not what the Bible is saying. So, for instance, among the Dai people in southwest China, uh, it's a very... Um, matriarchal society. The women, are, the women are the ones who go out and work. They're the ones who provide for the family. They're the ones who take care of these, these things. They would look at passages um, like what we've spoke of, and, and they would say, well, okay, that is backwards. That's not the way that we would interpret it. But, but what we would understand is they're just looking at it through their cultural lens. And so I think, once again, we need to get back to what is the cultural lens that God is revealing mm. these truths in? Mm. And whenever we're, whenever we're looking at the culture, particularly in the New Testament, because we're looking at verses related to mm -hmm. um, men and women in the church and various roles and responsibility, in Roman society, women were second tier, if not, if not basically worthless, Mm -hmm. uh, men were allowed to sleep around. There was nothing looked down on it. Uh, marriage was... Transactional. Tra yeah, very much so. Uh, marriage was more about how can I um, marry into a family to get wealth and status mm -hmm. for myself. Um, it, was, it was revolutionary for the New Testament to come along and to say... No, women are equal in worth and dignity and respect and honor. For Jesus to have women be among those who are going with him from place to place, some of his patrons who provide for him, uh, <clears throat> for Junia to be among the apostles in Romans 16, for the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. The first, do you realize this in the New Testament? The first people to share the gospel are women who came from the tomb and saw the resurrected Lord and went and told people he's risen from the dead. I mean, this is for, for Mary Magdalene to see Jesus, one of the first resurrection appearances, and for her to grab onto his cloak, right? This is not what you would have expected in the Roman world, in a world where women were not able to testify in court because their testimony was seen as worthless, where women were... They were considered, I mean, uh, basically they were seen as purveyors of old wives' tales and myths and rumors and these types of things. And so for these truths to be entrusted to them in that culture was definitely countercultural to say the least. Yeah. You stole all of my points. All? Yeah. But it's okay because I like that you talked about the very first people that, that Jesus um, sent out were women. And I think this even points back to last week of the truthfulness of the Gospels. Why in the world, if you're trying to fool a bunch of people, That's right. 
would you choose women whose testimonies in that culture, in that culture where, whose testimonies you couldn't even have a woman witness in court, and you chose women in all four Gospels? Because that's what happened, Jace. That's what happened. That's right. Exactly. And so, thank you, Kyle. And so, uh, I'll, I'll say this. Lexi sent me a pretty long text, and she, uh, she said, here's, what, here's my thoughts if you want to give them. So I was like, perfect. Uh, so she talked about, uh, she read a, the book uh, by Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, Confronting Christianity, and she got out of, um, she basically got this out of it. And she said, to who, she starts with the question, who is Jesus? And, and I think this is a good part to, to go back to. If you talk about who Jesus is, Jesus is God, right? And if you look at how Jesus treated women, excuse me, in the Gospels, it contrasts the way that the culture was treating women at that time. And you think about whether or not others in Scripture were oppressing women or the way in the Old Testament where they had multiple wives and even go back to David and Tamar, all these things within Scripture where women are mistreated. Jesus himself is the reversal of that. And if you're looking to Scripture and you're saying, how does God treat women? You can look at the person in ministry of Jesus. And so when you think about how Scripture reveals just absolute abuse and, uh, you know, these cultures of silencing and murder and exploitation of females, what did Jesus do? He uplifted the woman. So much so to where he, like Kyle said, he had them travel along with them. And so I, I like that Lexi pointed this out because I think it's hard for us because we live in a time and a culture that at least tries to uplift women, right? We, I think we are at that point. Uh, I think we can agree with that. But the cultures here that we're reading about and that these letters and these people are operating in was a culture that raped, abused, silenced, murdered, and ex- exploited females, and we can't really even, like, like slavery, we can't even fathom the way that these women felt in Scripture. And here's what the cool thing is. God's law protected them. He created boundaries and ways for these women to be justified and to be uh, brought in. And so when you think about Naomi and Ruth, you think about uh, stories like Hagar and Leah and Esther, all of these things contrast uh, the wrong done against them and what Jesus does in the Gospels. It, it's just like this reversal in the way that God treats women. And it's in so many places. I mean, even in places where you wouldn't expect, like the laws of divorce, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's so fascinating to me that whenever Jesus is speaking about the laws of divorce and he's saying, you know, it's for anything except for adultery, it's unacceptable. But he says, he says, if a husband divorces his wife for any reason other than adultery, he has sinned against her. Mm. No rabbi said that. Mm. Even in the Jewish culture, which is steeped from the Old Testament and in, in the knowledge that all people are made in God's image. 
No rabbi said that. And so for Jesus to come along and to make a statement like that would have been controversial, that everybody would have said, oh, of course it's a sin if she divorces him. Mm. But Jesus is saying, no, it works both ways if he yeah. divorces her. And so you find these little, these little um, <clears throat> seemingly revolutionary statements about how men and women relate to each other and their value and worth throughout the teachings of Jesus, even in very surprising places like that. And I did want to point out, we, we can't forget that just like the issue of slavery is grounded in that truth that all people are made in God's image, well, Genesis 1, 20, 24 to 26 says, male and female, he created them. Mm -hmm. In the image of God, he created them, yeah. right? And so whenever we're thinking about what does God look like? Well, it looks, God looks like man and woman in relationship, mm -hmm. right? And so whenever we're reading through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised whenever in verses like Genesis 1-2, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the waters, the verb there, hovered, is the word for a, a, a chicken, a female chicken, I don't know. Is, that, is there a word for that? A hen? Yeah, for a hen that's like sitting on her I just her eat them. I don't eggs. know their name. I just I eat them. I know, yeah. man. Fried. I got I to gotta take an aside. So I was driving here this morning, and there was a sermon that was on the radio, and I'm not kidding. The guy did a 10-minute illustration on how he likes his eggs. I have no idea how it attached to the sermon either. I didn't get there. He was still going after 10 minutes whenever I got out of the car. Okay, so yeah, so the image there is a hen that is sitting on her eggs. But that's the way that God describes himself. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You read throughout the Old Testament, the, obviously the, the words for father are masculine, the words for son are masculine, but the words for spirit are feminine. Ta numa, all throughout. There is feminine imagery that people like Paul uses for himself when he says, I care for you, church, like a mother cares for her children, mm -hmm. right? It's not a lesser thing in the Bible yeah. to use feminine imagery, even for a man yeah. in that situation. And even the, the roles of Adam and Eve in the garden um, to work and keep, these are... Eve was given the same role to do that, to help Adam in that, in that role that God had given him. And we don't have that much time left, but I do want to say this as we, as we close. Um, and I think you mentioned it, how revolutionary Paul's view of marriage is in Ephesians 5. For Paul to say, husbands, love your wives. That is a revolutionary term, a revolutionary way to look at marriage. We swim in a culture of love. Like love is the highest ideal. That's what we want to achieve. And so that really doesn't like shock us when we hear that. But for, for Paul to call the husbands to love their wives, and here's how Paul does it, as Christ loved the church. He roots it in the love of Jesus for us. This is a revolutionary way to view marriage and the role of female and male. Because there's this complementary role within male and female to work together to display the glory of the gospel. 
And here's the deal. Male and females have similarities, but we also have differences. And these differences are made for God's glory. And so when, when we read this in Ephesians 5, we should not, a lot of people just want to go, oh, well, it tells me to submit. Okay. Yeah, it does. It does. But it's in the context of Jesus submitting to the Father. And I don't know about you, but I've never looked at Jesus lesser than God. And if you do, that's, that, that's heresy, right? That is heresy. That's heresy. And so when we think about these things, when you think about submitting and submission, these are words that are looked at very negatively in our culture. Because it, it, it portrays a relationship where one person is lesser. But when you look at it in the context of Ephesians 5, and you look at it in the context of the church, which we didn't get into today, but Mike is, there you go, um, uh, and these um, portray a relationship that is meant to be a mutual submission, a mutual love, different roles, all pointing to the glory of God. And so here's where I, I want to end. If the Bible ever, if you're reading your Bible and it ever points you or directs you to a, a, a viewpoint or a way of thinking that degrades a human being lower than yourself, you're wrong. You're wrong. 100% of the time. Because at the center of this, rela- or this uh, argument or this conversation is that God's creation of human beings was given within us an innate dignity and worth that we did not earn and that we cannot lose. So I would end there by saying if your interpretation, if you are on the right, the left, wherever you are, and you're ending at a place where it goes, you know what, I think the Bible's telling me to degrade a person. No, it's not. No, it's not. And so there's so many things within Scripture. There's so many things that we can read and we can scratch our head and we go, I have no idea why this is in here. But here's what we need to do. And this is my, my charge from last week. Get in a group of people and talk about it. <laughs> Biblical interpretation in isolation leads to a whole lot of trouble. And so that's where I would end, and I'll let Kyle have the last word if he wants it. No, you already gave it. It was great. Okay. So um, next week, we only have two weeks left of this. Next week, we're going to talk, we're going to, you know, keep hitting these soft topics of Jesus and and hell next week. All right. Uh, And uh, I I don't even have time to think about what's two weeks from now, but I think it's going to be good. Uh, I made the list. I just don't remember. Uh, but um, I'm going to ask Kyle to pray for us, and then we will be dismissed. Father God, we just praise you because you have shown yourself time and time again in your word to us to be so good and so true and so loving. Father, we thank you that you have taught us clearly that all humans are made in your image and are therefore worthy of dignity and respect and honor. And I confess, God, that many of us in here, myself included, 
we have at times not looked at others in that way. We have looked at others as lesser for all sorts of different reasons, and we just confess to you that that is wrong. So I pray, God, that you will give us eyes to see our brothers and sisters, even, even if they hold a different political or religious viewpoint than us, even if they are a different ethnicity or race, even if they are from the other sex, God. I pray that you will help us to see them as people whom you have showered your love upon and your mercy upon, that you let the rain uh, fall on the just and the unjust, Mm -hmm. that no matter who they are, that they are someone whom you love and that we should love as well. And Father, I pray that a part of that love that we will show toward them is treating them with honor and respect and more important than anything else, sharing with them the gospel, uh, sharing with them the wonderful things that you have done in our life so that we can uh, together, hopefully, Lord willing, someday be united in faith as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.